Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. It's on. The debates start tonight in lovely Thunder Bay. I haven't been there. I've just heard it's great. Um, I've been to North Bay. I haven't been to Thunder Bay yet. It's on the list. It's on, you know, like like all those world destinations. I, you know, you want to get to Madrid, Spain, and you want to get to Tokyo, and and you want to get to Thunder Bay, Canada. So it's, I don't know if it's in that order, but uh, but I'll have to live vicariously through the five liberal candidates who will take the stage a little later on tonight. And we'll see if there's any uh, drama surrounding some developments. An unexpected development happened yesterday, quite obviously, with one of the candidates. And we'll get there. Nobody knows what Directive 18 is, probably who's tuning in this morning, unless the person who wrote it is listening. But I'll tell you what it is. It is basically um, in schools, The it's meant to review some of the books. And the uh, school boards have been ordered by Directive 18, which comes down from the Ministry of Education, to take a comprehensive diversity audit of schools. And that's not just books, by the way. That's what's the name of the school? What about the mascot? Could the mascot offend anybody? Classrooms, but also libraries. So what's the school's name? What's the school's mascot? Have we got something out of the 60s? Is anyone painting their face? We probably shouldn't do that. Is it something that would would be uh, a, a bit of a, a an emotional tweak for uh, a, a small number of people or certainly a large number of people as well? I know, for example, um, I we played against a school that was called the Hurons, and then they changed their name, and that is a pretty frequent thing. I think they became uh, the Red Hawks or something, and I know there's schools with that R word that the Washington NFL team used to have, and many of those schools became the Red Hawks or the Redbirds or something else. So they wanted to keep red in the word, and they wanted to keep the, probably to save money, keep the jersey colors and, and, the, uh, and the school colors and how the gym was painted, but they didn't want that word there anymore. But libraries are the focus. So it's naming mascots, classrooms, libraries, and libraries are the focus here. And I'll read you more from Directive 18. It should include evaluating books, media, other resources currently being used in schools for teaching and learning English, history, social sciences to make sure they're inclusive and culturally responsive, relevant, and reflective of the student bodies and voices. Basically, I mean, how I read this, tighten it up, make it more modern, make sure that people from all different walks of life can see themselves, hear themselves, read about themselves. And I don't know how you lean politically. How would I know? But I I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that. That's a good thing. That's called evolving. But somehow, in some way, either Directive 18 got misunderstood in the Peel region. The director of education has already said, we rolled it out wrong. Well, there's only... You rolled it out wrong. When did you realize you rolled it out wrong? And why did you roll it out wrong? So there's lots of sort of, you know, your basic journalism 101 questions that are worth asking about this. The story came up yesterday and really did explode so much to the point, you're not surprised, that it started getting a lot of coverage in the United States. And when the United States are paying attention to our school culture wars and we're not paying attention to theirs, well, then the people that predicted school culture wars would remain only in the United States, they're wrong. So the concept is weeding books. And the idea is take the ones that are a little meaningless, take the ones that have outdated concepts, language, even plot points, and move them along and bring new ones in. Now, I don't know that this is cancel culture by its true name. I don't. But 
Clearly, a student decided to speak up at, in Peel Region at uh, Arendale Secondary School, and she said, I-, I can't find the books that used to be there anymore. And she took a photo of shelves. And by the way, these shelves are they're not empty, but they're not even half full anymore, at least the photo she took. There's tons of space. So not only have we removed books that seem to matter to teenagers, and we should care what teenagers want to read, but we also have uh, just removed books, period, that that give options for people that may you may see yourself reflected in. Bottom line is too many have gone out. Harry Potter books, gone. The Hunger Games books, which teenagers love, gone. And many, many more. Raina Takata is that student. She decided to speak up. And she told um, a a media organization that this was no good. And she started to notice it and can't figure out why it's happened. I think as students, we should decide what we can and cannot read. Especially for me as a person of color, I think that, and someone who's of Japanese descent, I think that people's authors who wrote about Japanese internment camps are going to be erased and the entire events that went on historically for Japanese Canadians are going to be removed and to me that worries me a lot. That's pretty reasonable. She's Japanese Canadian. She wants to read books that reflect her history. Now, I bet you if you moved somewhere and I moved somewhere, we'd expect to read a lot about that country's history. Let me let me put the shoes on the other foot here. If I moved to Tokyo, Japan and I was 17 or um, I moved there when I was 25 and I went to the local library, I'd expect to read a lot about Japanese culture. I think that's fair. I'd expect to read a lot about their history, good and bad, um, beautiful and ugly, because that's what history is. It's full of mistakes. It's full of things that we evolved from, all of it. And, and we should know our history, right, or we're doomed to repeat it. That's a rather famous concept that we get taught pretty much from a very young age. So this is an odd one. Um, Takata said students were told by staff, quote, if the shelves look emptier right now, it's because we have to remove all books prior to 2008. Well, was this some kind of game of broken telephone? That's not what the Directive 18 is. So here's what's happening. Many people are saying, don't blame the teachers. The Directive 18 from the province said, get rid of older books and do a bit of a do a bit of a cleanse, if you will. And. If the concept was, wait a minute, does that mean removing all books prior to 2008? How could you misunderstand that? Because that's not what Stephen Lecce wants, and it's not what Doug Ford wants, and it's not what they told them to do. So it's awfully confusing. And again, you know, <laughs> it's I don't know that it's censorship. It may just be weeding. But let's listen to the students. Let's listen to what they have to say. They're our future. They're the ones that read in these libraries. And I think it's significant that this student decided to speak up and many others like her actually did. Well, more on that as the morning continues. That's for sure. It's 613. Let me pivot to this for a couple minutes. I think there's energy behind the Ontario Liberal Party, maybe the most since 2016, early parts of 2017. And you might say, come on, what are you talking about, Greg? Weren't they the weren't they the ruling party with a majority government all the way up until spring of 2018? Yeah, I guess they were. But by the time early 2017 rolled around, we knew they were going to get squashed like bugs in the 2018 provincial election. This happens from time to time. I mentioned the analogy. You see and feel and hear the train coming, and it was coming for the Ontario Liberals. That had to happen in 2018. What didn't have to happen is losing so badly last June of 2022. 
the party ran an uninspiring campaign with an uninspiring leader. And there was a lot of negative energy internally within the party, not just so I'm told, but so I sought out and people denied. I'm like, no, no, no. This feels like negative energy. Say what you will about the NDP. They're organized. They're buttoned up. They generally speaking have a, uh, you know, have a mission statement and they know who they are. And I'm not sure over the last few years, the Ontario liberals have figured all that out. They sure didn't going into last June. Again, uninspiring leader, uninspiring platform, um, some less lesser than candidates. That's just bottom line. But tonight is the first of five debates. And this party would benefit from all five people, all five perspectives, all five spears of influence. Bonnie Crombie was announced yesterday. We'll leave the mayor's chair in Mississauga. October 7th. Now, I think that's notable. It's got some risk. And there's two schools of thought about where this goes. There are people believing that Bonnie Crombie is the heir apparent. There are some people believing that the Liberal Party machinery has just decided it's her turn. And that happens sometimes. It was Jean Chrétien's turn in the uh, in the late, 80, uh, late 80s and early 90s, post-John Turner. They just decided that that was the case. They kind of did that with Del Duca, the liberals did, last time. It certainly is Pierre Polyever's turn, post some uninspiring um, energy behind Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole. But Bonnie Crombie has had some moments where you're not quite sure why she's in it. Maybe she doesn't feel like a true liberal. Remember the first day she stepped out and decided, I'm going to announce that I'm going to run for the Ontario liberal leader. She did countless interviews where she said things like this. To create a more a fair and inclusive Ontario, a more centrist government. We have one today that has gone too far to the right and the liberal party and the other party too far to the left. I think we need to govern from the centre. She apologized for those comments the next day and said, well, I misspoke. But that that's your first day of basically getting yourself out there. You said you wanted to govern from the center right, and it was pounced on by the other candidates. I don't know where tonight goes, and I, I see both sides of her leaving the mayor's chair. One, it could be out of desperation, and one, it could be out of extreme confidence. We'll know a lot more later on this evening, and we'll have all that audio for you on the show tomorrow. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. This story's fascinating, and I get why people would feel this way. Lyft, so this is Lyft, not Uber, is going to have a new feature, Sheba, that lets women, non-binary riders, request their driver's gender. Now, I saw the usual online reaction. People roll their eyes. Oh, everybody's so sensitive, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, my wife travels a lot, and she goes out of town. And I asked her last night, I said, how many times have you had like a female um, Uber or Lyft driver. And she's like, I don't think about it, but it might be a nice option to have and nice option to request. You're you're leaving a, an arena, Sheba, at 1130 at night in a town you don't know. Why wouldn't you want that? I love the idea, to be honest with you. So Lyft is coming out with this. And why? Because of sexual assault cases that they've had. There have been many of them. They've had over 4,000 sexual assault cases in the span of two years uh, and this was a, a report from 2021 that came out. And it, the vast majority of trips, they say, it's fine and dandy. Everybody's feeling safe. But just over 4,000 in two years, that's something for people to take note of. And I bet you, you've never even thought about it. It doesn't I, even uh, cross your mind. It, well, it does. It when I, In the moment when I'm in an, an Uber, if I, the last time I was in one was probably in Phoenix coming from the airport because the last time I flew anywhere is 
that's but that's the only time it occurs to me. I'm like, I've got a male driver and I'm talking to him and he's like, what are you in town for? And I'm never I'm never uncomfortable. I'm never uncomfortable. Yeah, see, I, so I don't want people to be uncomfortable in a foreign country or a different place. I've taken them in Paris, France with like it doesn't occur to me that all of a sudden I could be in some kind of physical trouble or even even a creepy moment, right? Like there's... Oh, there's, there's, but, these, but women have a creepy moment all the well, time. Well, I don't want you to. So if a female prevents Which you from... Which is why I love this. If a female prevents you from doing that... Now, let me... let me. I'm going to flip the script on you a little bit here. Is it okay that a man asks for a man? Why not? If he's more right. comfortable with that, sure. So we'll, we'll lift, allow that also. <laughs> well, but I, mean, I don't know look, if it will. Uber, Uber reported 141 rape reports in 2020 alone. I remember when I went to Nashville with my daughter, who's 10 years old, to see Taylor Swift. Uh, this was just in May. We went to the Grand Ole Opry, that show. Yeah. And it's out of town. It's not. It's sort of outside of Nashville. We had to take an, I think it was an, yeah, an Uber. We took an Uber mm. there. Show ends at like 1130 or midnight. And I called an Uber. And the guy pulled up, we got in the back and it crossed my mind. It just, it, I felt a little bit uncomfortable and I don't know if I would have felt that way if I didn't have my daughter with me. My thought was I'm in this car alone with this guy and my 10 year old daughter in a city. I don't know anyone here. I don't know where we're going. I obviously I followed like the Google map on my phone to make sure we're going. But the fact that I even have to pull out my phone to make sure we're going in the right direction tells you. There is a thought there. So it literally would put you more peace of mind, more at ease. You, the car pulls up and it's a in female In a situation driver. like that. I understand why. I'm asking. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would probably have an incredible conversation with her on the whole drive. Yeah. As opposed to making sure we're going in the right direction towards the hotel. Yeah. I, I, I don't want, I, should we discriminate by age? I don't want a guy with a bowler hat with the left uh, lane turn signal on the entire time I'm going down the, the fast lane. Well, you Because that's me sometimes. Review. I think. I'd get bad reviews. My wife's like, that that blinker's on. Just tell me. But I bet you don't give bad reviews for Lyft or Uber. (laughs) I know you. You probably, it could be the worst ride of your life. And you'll still say, no, it was pretty good. Uh, No, see something, say something. That kind of of thing. (laughs) See a bad driver, say a bad driver. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. I bet you didn't know, it's possible you didn't know, that couples can end up getting separated Um, and forced into different facilities when they go into long-term care in this province. And for all that we disagree on about this practical thing or politics or ideology, you would think that we'd all agree that that should never happen. Our next guest is an NDP MPP. She wrote an op-ed about this in the Toronto Star and joins us now. She is Catherine Fife, MPP for Waterloo. She's also a finance and treasury board critic. It's a great pleasure to have you on again. Thanks for making the time. Oh, good morning, Greg Brady. Do you buy? Do you, thank you, Catherine Fife. Do you buy that notion that there just shouldn't be? We should be able to, you know, as much as something the conservative government do would make your blood boil, and maybe the other way around. Sometimes, certainly, there should be bipartisan agreement that this should never happen, and married couples should never be that far apart. Yeah, I mean, and you were quite right, actually, in your opening comments, Greg, is that many people, you know, as they age and then they're looking for care options, they are caught off guard by the fact that. Often couples are separated in long-term care uh, as they age. So, yeah, and actually the government did vote for this piece of legislation, Bill 21, till death do us part, uh, almost a year ago. And it's been sitting at committee uh, since that time. So I, I am, as the, you know, as the author of that piece of legislation, really trying to push the Ford government to call the bill. Let's find some solutions. Long-term care 
has been in the news for many years now. And if we're going to redesign the system, let's let's make sure we design it so that couples can stay together. You note that Nova Scotia did a much better job expediting this process. What did they do that right now Ontario hasn't? So they enshrined in legislation that couples have the right to stay together. And so they've designed that system so that, uh, you know, because the, the fact of the matter is, Greg, is that couples don't always age at the same time. Right. They have different needs. So sometimes one is more independent than another. So care campuses are actually, you know, where you can have independent living, where you need assistive living, or if you require long-term care. And, and you know, what we, what we do know for sure is that uh, when couples are separated, after being married 40, 50, 60 years, that uh, their health declines when they are apart from each other. And one, the couple that actually inspired this legislation, uh, Jim and Joan McLeod, have been separated almost for six years now. And Jim cites, you know, the mental, the mental and emotional labor of being apart from his wife, Joan. Joan doesn't understand why they can't be together. He drives every day to see her. Uh, but he also makes the point that if they were uh, in the same you know, place, that he could actually provide some care for her. And, and that's what spouses do. They take care of each other. So I think that Doug Ford, uh, you know, <laughs> right about now, should be looking to change the channel, if you will. Uh, he should call this piece of legislation to the Social Policy Committee, and we should design the system that Ontarian seniors deserve. I wonder at the same time, um, you know, I'm sure we've got listeners who say who are of um, of our generation, Catherine, yours and mine, who have aging parents and and they may be listening, saying uh, we're going to ask ourselves many questions anyway. Did we get them to a retirement home fast enough? Did we get them to long term care fast enough? Did we move too quickly to do that? And then saw if they're living with dementia, did they did they start to really have a more immediate downward spiral? The concept is if you have to put somebody in long-term care, let's say with dementia, we're going to give you tremendous options for that spouse to live in an adjoining retirement home or live closer or, or just have more access to their spouse. Oh, absolutely. And, and Queen's Research, Queen's University is actually doing some research on this and, and couples, uh, you know, the quality of their lives are better when they yeah. actually have access to each other. It's, Greg, it's just cruel. And uh, as Jim has said, sorry, his his heart is breaking. Jones, like they've been separated for six years after 60 years of marriage. Uh, And seniors built this province. They contributed to our communities. They paid their taxes and they should be treated with greater respect as they age. Do you worry? It's a a broader question. The long term (laughs) care file for this Ford government, and I'd lay some of it at the prior liberal governments, that like even the fact that, that Catherine, we've got now a fourth minister of long-term care in the last two and a half years. Does that say that the we've had the same, you know, we've had the same education minister, we've had the same people stay in other portfolios, that it's just it's just treated too trivially by this government? Yeah, I mean, I, I have, I've said in the legislature, it feels like ageism, right? Is that it's an afterthought. And and you're quite right. There is a lot of ground to be made up uh, on the long-term care file. And, and we learned the hard way, like over 5,000 seniors died in long-term care during the pandemic. And that's when people really, you know, that, that shone a light on how broken that system is. But as, you know, as we now have this knowledge, we should do something with it. And that's why investing in care campuses 
uh, actually makes a lot of sense. And so that's why the bill needs to be called, Greg. Mm. Uh, we need to have a debate about, you know, how we are treating seniors in Ontario and, and how we can actually find some solutions and invest. And that should be nonpartisan. Absolutely. Here's a strategic question for you. We're going to have the first Ontario Liberal leadership debate uh, tonight in Thunder Bay. And I know when Marit Stiles uh, ascended to become the new leader of the Ontario NDP, a lot of attention, a lot of focus on who she is, the platform of the party. And I know Ontario Liberals are like, wow, we're really not in the news cycle. But Liberals have said we need to differentiate between what we are and what the NDP is. You can't just be the anti-Doug Ford party. What would you say to a listener to say, this is where we're different from what we think the Ontario Liberals are going to create for themselves? Traditionally, and this is who we are as New Democrats and, and the official opposition of Ontario, is that we propose solutions, but we are very focused on investments that improve the quality of life of Ontarians. And and this is especially true in healthcare. I mean, we believe strongly that people have access to the best source, the best services, so that they, sorry, so that they stay healthier. And 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 so our. Our track record is key investments. Uh, the Liberals' track record on long-term care, as you pointed out, is really abysmal. We spend a lot of money. You know, I've talked about this before. We spend a ton of money on health care. We're spending more per person on terror than we ever have. And I think we'd make the case that it's not working or it's not going well. The Liberals say they want to reframe that to some extent. Well, the, the healthcare system in Ontario is very reactive to, to people becoming ill. So the solution is, is not necessarily throwing more money at it. It's around strategic investments so that people don't get so ill. I mean, I have people in my riding, Greg, mm. who have been waiting for you know surgery. One lady is actually going back to her home country of Pakistan to access surgery. So the, the, the key piece around, you know, investing in the services that benefit people's lives is that you actually have to do that. And as the finance critic, I can tell you that this government makes budget promises and then the money doesn't get to where it's needed. And this is very true on the Alzheimer's file and certainly on uh, women's crisis services. All important stuff. Please stay with in touch uh, with us on this long-term care file. And you're right. We should hold uh, hold every politician's feet to the fire from all the parties uh, to get this uh, this this uh, uh, long-term care legislation passed that keeps couples together. Thank you for the time this morning. Thanks, Greg. Have a great day. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 530. We are 640 Toronto. In London yesterday, this announcement was an interesting one. Here's Justin Trudeau talking about why they need to build homes for younger people. Here he is. We're facing a shortage of housing right now. And that's why prices of homes have become far too high. It's not fair to young people who feel like cities are turning their backs on them. When housing is that expensive, young people feel like cities don't want them. They feel like they can't succeed. But if young people can't succeed in our cities then where can they succeed? That's why we're addressing this. Housing in big cities around the world has already become out of reach for many, 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 in places like New York, Paris, London, San Francisco. We're not going to follow those examples. Okay, so it's one thing. The Liberals applauded themselves for that. They're having a caucus meeting in London. Um, And it is something, not nothing, but a lot of people documented that's old money. This is just money that was allocated and and allocated to each city. Mike Moffat, brilliant stuff on housing, founding director of Place Center at the Smart Prosperity Institute. It's great to have you back on. You you tell me, was that just sort of a new announcement about an old commitment? 
Yeah, I, I think some of the details here are are quite good. Uh, you know, changing uh, changing municipal zoning and, and some of these investments. So you know, directionally, it's uh, it, it's going in the right area, but it's it's just not enough. Uh, you know, we we heard that I totally agree with everything the prime minister said there, except when he got to the point where we don't want to turn into a New York or San Francisco. I think we're already there. Uh, yeah. And- I think that the government needs to take this problem more seriously. You know, they're, they're trying to fight a, a house fire, you know, with an eyedropper full of water. Yeah, the water helps, but only it only goes so far. It also feels like there's a little bit of bypass the province because every level of government, as you know, has pointed fingers at each other. You need to do more. You need to cut red tape. You need to uh, Toronto's land transfer tax is obviously a big story during the uh, during our municipal by-election. Is this the federal government kind of kind of sliding past the Ford government and dealing with cities on their own? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is. And I actually think that that approach is, is smart, that mm-hmm. municipalities need money, but uh, we also need them to reform. And the, the, the federal government has deeper pockets. So, you know, there is absolutely potential for win-win deals here where the federal government says, OK, here's some money for infrastructure. But in order to get it, we need you to do the, the, the following thing. So. Yeah, directionally, I, I, I think they're, they're moving in the right direction, but not nearly far enough and, and certainly not nearly fast enough. Mike Moffitt's our guest, founding director of Place Center. Uh, you must have felt uh, honored, but I think properly recognized that the federal government wanted to hear from you and other colleagues and say, how can we fix this? What are some of your ideas? With w- saying what you're able to say, what was that experience like? It was interesting. Yeah. So we uh, we got invited out to PEI to the, the cabinet retreat. And, uh, you know, we presented some of the uh, ideas that um, were in the National Housing Accord, you know, ways to make uh, apartment building more viable. Right now, we're seeing a big slowdown in construction because interest rates are so high. So we put a number of ideas on the table, uh, like, uh, you know, discounted financing uh, for these projects, like eliminating the GST, HST on uh, building uh, new purpose-built rentals, and a number of other ideas that wouldn't cost the federal government all that much, but would be uh, quite transformative. Mike Moffitt's our guest joining us on Toronto Today. Um, when we look at, at housing starts, we've had so many people on tell us we can't put shovels in the ground fast enough is a cliche is that people sometimes use, but then they say, no, you don't understand. We can't put shovels in the ground fast enough because the interest rates are too high. Builds are down. So this isn't, we know there's sort of NIMBY pockets where mayors and city councils have, have stopped progress and also stopped, uh, uh, stopped density. But there are obviously builder companies that say, it's it's not economically feasible for us to meet our targets for this year so far. Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing about 22% of uh, rental projects uh, getting shelled. So so the condos are still happening because a lot of those are pre-sales, but even those are slowing down because consumer demand is down. But on the rental side, there's a, a lot of projects that made sense at 1% or 2% interest rates that don't anymore at 5 to 6%. So that's a, that's a real, real problem. And, you know, we're seeing... Uh, housing starts down about 10% from last year at a time when the CMHC says that we need to double or even triple housing starts. We're moving in the opposite direction. I know there was a story about a, a smaller town mayor that couldn't afford her own home. She was living with her parents and her salary was around 90 grand, but it was documented yesterday uh, in my old hometown and your old hometown and where you're teaching now. Um, one of the MPs said, I-, I can't afford a home in my city. She does make $132,000. Is that sort of a cautionary tale of, of, of how difficult it is right now? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, so Ariel uh, Cayabaga, the, uh, the MP for London West, uh, where I'm actually standing right now. Uh-huh. Uh, she uh, she says that uh, she can't afford a house, and and that's actually true. And that's the scary thing. You can earn one hundred and forty thousand dollars, but uh, with interest rates as high as they are, plus the stress test, you're probably not qualifying for a mortgage in a lot of uh, a lot of Canadian cities. That you need to be in the sort of top five uh, percent of income earners, which is just absolutely ridiculous that we've placed mm. that homes to everyone except, you know, the top few percent. Amazing stuff. Uh, Mike Moffat joining us. Thanks very much for the time uh, in London. By the way, I thought it was very prudent for your maybe future political career. You did not make a video eating lobster uh, <laughs> while you were. I thought that was smart. That'll come back to haunt you in a few years, Mike. Yeah, I, I, I'm more of a diner kind of guy. <laughs> Burgers and fries all the way. Thanks for this this morning. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. There's uh, Mike Moffat joining us from Smart Prosperity. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. Ontario Place. A lot of decisions coming to a head here. And our next guest as a city councillor and as a recent mayoral candidate was really outspoken on this, was very vocal about this. And Alex Bozikovic in the Globe and Mail, his headline, it's time for politicians and planners to say no to the Ontario Place redevelopment plans. But I think he's referencing other politicians. So we'll ask our next guest if the voices need to be a bit louder around him because he's been pretty vocal. He is City Councilor Josh Madlow. It's great to have you back on the show. I hope the school year started well. I know you and I have nightmares. We're still in school, but we're not. But our kids are in school. I hope it started well. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, my, my daughter's uh, back in school. She started the fifth grade and is seemingly happy to be there so far so so far so good she's away from dad and mom seven hours a day this is this is what keeps her really the absence makes the heart grow fonder even that in parenting exactly it. that <laughs> is exactly it her dad has become far too embarrassing she's happy to be back at school that's exactly what happened so alex writes in this the answer must be no to ontario place but it's unclear whether the city is ready to speak the truth and pick a fight you said during the campaign and here's the credit you were the only politician to say so I'd prevent this by selling that land to the federal government. We didn't hear that pledge from a lot of candidates, and we actually didn't even hear it from Mayor Olivia Chow. Do your colleagues around you need to do more? So what I... Toronto absolutely needs to, needs to take a very clear and unequivocal stand that our waterfront is for the public. Uh, you know, far too much of Toronto's uh, waterfront is already private, and we have an opportunity to do something really special uh, we want a vibrant, animated destination at Ontario Place. Uh, it definitely needs to be refreshed. It needs to have new ideas contributed to it. And there are a lot of ideas that the communities uh, are, are contributing to this, uh, this debate. That being said, uh, it shouldn't be turned over to a private Austrian uh, company to build a mega spa to destroy over 800 trees on the West Island. And to really kind of remove this from the public realm. Um, now, uh, here's here's where the city's at. The city's you know, reviewing it. It's reviewing the proposal. Um, uh, a credit to my colleagues. They did mm-hmm. uh, uh, support my idea that we should investigate uh, handing over uh, the city portion of the land to the feds if necessary. Uh, you know, even if it was like for a dollar. And and just to contextualize this for your listeners, yeah. the reason that I put this on the table is that if the city disagrees with the province and says, we want Ontario Place to be a public space, um, the province has the legal right to expropriate the city's land. The province does not have the ability to expropriate federal land. 
So that's why this would be a creative way for the federal government to really be part of the solution, along with what the feds could also do in support is support uh, an environmental impact assessment to understand what the impact of not only the spa, but of the 2,500 spots underground parking garage would have on the natural environment uh, at Ontario Place as well. So uh, I just think we need to, uh, you know, at a time when this government is doing everything in secrecy, they've got a secret 95-year lease that they've made uh, with uh, with this uh, this Austrian company that we've never seen, we've never been allowed to see, and and we're the ones who who have to consider supporting it or not, right? It's, it's ridiculous. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think I think I think I think I think it's time for for all of us to make it very clear that uh, that, that you know we need to be creative about how to move forward and say no to this. I mean, the city's planners are they're the experts about this, Josh. But I've heard too many people that really observe your municipal politics closely that say. Isn't that a little bit too much power for people that were appointed, not elected? You were elected. Mayor Chow was elected. All the other councillors were elected. Shouldn't it ultimately be, uh, you can usurp the city planner's influence, but all I read about is, well, if the city planners sign off on this, this looks like a fait accompli, and that can't be so. Well, at the end of the day, uh, the city planner's job is to review the application and make recommendations the city's position is ultimately the decision of the mayor and city council. Uh, I am reassured by the fact that Mayor Olivia Chow uh, has opposed uh, the, 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 the privatization of Ontario Place's waterfront. And she's also suggested uh, ideas which I support, which is, you know, it's not the concept of a spa that, you know, people like spas. Spas can be fun. But it just shouldn't be right at the waterfront. Uh, perhaps we could look at an area uh, at uh, the exhibition place, at the parking lots there. Maybe that's a better uh, place. Maybe we could work together on on creative solutions. So, you know, I, I think Olivia uh, Mayor Chow uh, is is right to say, listen, mm. yes, we're saying we're saying no, but also we're open to figuring out a better proposal, as are uh, activists like Ontario Place uh, for All that have come forward with a proposal called a better idea where they're saying, we're not just saying no, we're saying Mm -hmm. we want to work with you to come up with a better plan that doesn't privatize the waterfront and destroy our environment. We'll keep talking Ontario place and all these important issues. Josh, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate you coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks, Greg. Josh Matlow, Toronto city council for ward 12, Toronto, St. Paul's Toronto today with Greg Brady weekdays at five 30. We are six 40 Toronto. Let's get to our 640, the six stories that you'll be talking about all day long, your four-day forecast, and then we'll zero in on the story we're going to start with. Do the Ontario Liberals have some momentum? Will there be some shots fired tonight among the five candidates? Time will tell, but the new development in that race as they go into first debate of five in Thunder Bay tonight is Bonnie Crombie is going to take a leave of absence as Mississauga mayor. See this coming. October 7th is her final day for uh, for being mayor. How will that land in Mississauga? That's an interesting conversation. She's been kind of quiet. Hasn't done much media. We've, by the way, we've asked to have her on. We haven't had her yet. We'll keep asking. Um, but since a photo of her with the controversial Mr. X cropped up from a Toronto Raptors game last season, she hasn't said very much. Does that photo get brought up tonight at the debate? Obviously, Yasser Nakfi, Nader, Smith are deemed the other contenders. Dr. Adil Shamji, a current Liberal MP there as well, along with Federal MP Ted Shu. Second story, um, WestJet and their union aren't happy that Pierre Polyever was doing some 
kind of political stunting stand-up comedy it was kind of funny for a little bit but it was was it funny cringy or was it funny like haha pierre polievre on an airplane coming back from the uh cpc convention in quebec city to calgary and the union now wants an apology we told you yesterday on the show jan arden is going to boycott westjet but would she be telling people she was boycotting westjet if she couldn't Tell people she was boycotting WestJet. You know what I mean. The union wants an apology from the airline. The airline says they will reassess their policy, which I didn't think there was a policy letting, you know, political leaders uh, address the cabin for 45 seconds at a time. I could be wrong about that policy. In Peel Region, concerned that books have moved out of your kids' high school libraries. There was a provincial mandate to change some things up. It's called Directive 18. But the region and the library said, let's get rid of everything before 2008. It's not really what the province told them to do. And they said so yesterday. Premier Doug Ford and Education Minister Stephen Lecce weighing in on that front. Here's an Arendale student worried about the books being removed. I wanted to really well in school. I want to get into a good university. And I know there are lots of other students like me. So my biggest concern is that these books, since we don't know what is being removed, these books could be educational and they could be helpful and benefit me and others into doing well in school. And since they're gone now, we don't have those sources. Fourth story, a big one yesterday. A hateful racist tirade from a disgruntled TTC customer and a black female bus driver. That man appeared in court yesterday. He faces three charges. He made bail. But is it a hate crime? Do those charges go far enough? That's going to get kicked around a good chunk today, I'm sure, on the other shows on 640 Toronto. And we'll address it after 7 o'clock as well. A really complicated case from an immigration perspective, from a uh, just what do we do about this perspective? And what's this relationship now between Canada and the UK? A UK soldier, a 28-year-old corporal in the British Army is charged with second-degree murder in the killing of a 38-year-old Canadian man, a man from Manitoba who started his own company. Gibson had been in Canada on a training exercise. The reports are they got in a bar fight in Toronto's entertainment district late last month. It moved outside, and Craig Gibson is now charged with killing Brett Sheffield. He's obviously being held in custody, but where this story goes and does he ever get back to the U.K. if he's found guilty Certainly questions that will be uh, interesting to answer. And finally, in Pennsylvania, yeah, yeah, Pennsylvania. We always love our Pennsylvania news. A dog named Yoda, four years old, caught an escaped prisoner, a convicted murderer who got out of prison. Yoda's four years old, a Belgian Malinois, and Yoda physically subdued convicted killer Danilo Cavalcanti. The killer suffered a minor bite wound. I bet he did. And that... And that was later upgraded to a scalp wound. Oh, no. Poor baby. Anyway, good job, doggy. Four years old um, and fantastic stuff. So there's that. Let's give you our four-day forecast. Sunny and 21 degrees today, down to a low of 9 degrees tonight. Single digits, as Dave Bradley hinted at in his last news update. But Friday, Saturday, look great. Sunny skies and 21 on Friday. Sunny skies on Saturday and 23, but we may get rain. Sunday's the lousy afternoon of the next three. Sunny and 21. It's Greg Brady, uh, Shiba Siddiqui on Toronto Today. By the way, here's a proof. I know you don't think I got Belgian Malinois right, but I looked it up. And here's <laughs> here's how the lady on the internet pronounces it. Belgian Malinois. Maybe I didn't get it. Can I get it one more time? Belgian Malinois. 
Do you think I had a Belgian Bel- Malinois? Belgian Malon- Malinois. No, Malinois. I d- okay, I messed that up. Malinois, like French. Malinois. Mal- oh, that's be- see again. I didn't. I haven't spent as much time in Quebec as you, and I didn't grow up in Ottawa. So these are real. I'm really hindered, and I I was flunking grade eleven French, and I dropped it uh, by about oh. December. So that's the well, last everybody time. Everybody speaks French in Belgium. That's probably why it's pronounced yeah. Malinois. I think that's right. Uh, all right, so a couple minutes here on um, Bonnie Crombie. This came up yesterday. The debate will be tonight. What do you do? You have a thought on her leaving as Mississauga mayor? It's two things, right? It's either holy cow, I'm not doing as well as I thought, or this is a breeze and I know what my next job is going to be. I think you could think either thing. You know, there are people on both sides of that that fully believe, okay, she's got it in the bag, it's all hers. And then others who are like, no, there's no way she's panicking. So it's I'm actually very interested to see what happens in this case. You and I have a lot of conversation about Bonnie Crombie. Mm -hmm. I think that you are obsessed with her age. No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, that's, this is something that, and, and she's the only candidate who's a, a age you're obsessed with. By the way, that's I just like to point that out. We haven't uh, spoken about John Tory. I mentioned his age. No, in this leadership Joe Biden. race. In this, oh come on. Yeah, she because oh, she's because she's older than the, than by 15, 16 years than every so, other candidate. So, so, so is what? Hazel McCallion. So what? What's your point? Maybe it's a tradition uh, down in Mississauga. Yeah, that's maybe how they it make is. Them. That's how they make them. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. They're female and they live forever and they do a great job. I will say that. I mean, Hazel was, Hurricane Hazel was phenomenal. Uh, I'm, I want to hear what she has to say tonight, Bonnie. I, I want to see, I want to see, I mean, all of them, all of them, but Nate and Bonnie at that, I mean, we, we, I know you have some great conversations with Nate. We have a lot of the candidates on our station Yeah, and you're right. Where I'm hoping that Bonnie can join you one yeah. day soon to have a conversation around the leadership and why she decided to step away. I think I th- I still mean it. I think all five candidates. This is the this is a big question. Um, if if Erskine Smith doesn't win, does he? Will he work with Bonnie as a leader, and will he? You know, take his take his lumps, if you will, and just run as an MPP. Secondarily, is Bonnie Crombie going to do that, or is she just going to go back to Mississauga and be mayor? I think those are valid and interesting questions. Maybe they get brought up tonight. Maybe they don't. How young is too young to run for the leadership race, Brady? 19. <laughs> you think so? I'm serious. I know you're serious, but I also say Hazel McCallion was such a unique, that's that's a that's a that's almost the proverbial unicorn. I don't think we're going to vote. I don't think a 91-year-old premier, right? Like you're smiling. Come on. Like that, that's not going to happen. Okay. How about in your 30s? Do you think somebody in their 30s is too young to run for no, leadership? No. No, I don't. I don't. No. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, again, it doesn't matter to me. John Tory, John Tory's age was just a number. Bonnie Crombie's age, just it's just a number. But other voters may not think so. That's all I've ever said. Most of what I've ever said. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 640 Toronto.